Well, it's great to be with you tonight. Hey, if I haven't met you, my name is Jason. Uh, I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors at Christ Covenant. Great privilege working alongside guys like Jordan and Thomas. And it, it really is an honor to come and be a guest here tonight and teach uh, for you all. I, um, I want to begin uh, by looking at a passage of scripture from Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 17. Uh, I'm going to read verse, uh, we'll come back to this. Uh, we're going to we read it, we'll go away from it for a while, and then we'll come back to it. I'm going to read verse 5 through, uh, say, 10, and then I'm going to read verse 14. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 10, and verse 14. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots into the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And then verse 14, Jeremiah's prayer, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, really what I want to do tonight is start a conversation that I hope you will have, and I'm happy to have it with you, but I want you to have it without me. And I want you, as you get into your small groups, you know, I, ju I jumped into a small group last night. I'd never gone to it before, but it was, a, some, it was a buddy of mine who leads a small group of guys. And I was so encouraged by it because it was so encouraging. And the guys were so encouraging to one another. And I was really seeing this kind of Hebrews 10, 24 idea worked out. Let us consider how to stir one another along toward faith, toward good deeds. Let us, let us consider how to water one another or how to pr push one another toward the, the water of the word that, that this passage just talked about here so that we won't be parched when we head out into dry places so that we will remain fruitful even in the year of the drought. You know, I, I know Thomas last week started a, a little series with you guys just kind of talking about the workplace talking about what does it mean to be a Christian working in a secular age? And, you know, some of you guys may be here tonight. You may have come with a friend. You may not call yourself a Christian. Um, and so, you know, I, I understand that, that some of what I say tonight may not totally make sense to you and, and, and in some ways may kind of offend some of the worldview positions that you hold. But, but really what I want to do tonight is speak kind of to Christians who are trying to maneuver a secular age, who are trying to maneuver an age that in many ways doesn't really share its worldview. 
And, and like I said, I, I want to help you have a conversation. I want to I want to I want to help you have a conversation that, that I'm, I'm sure you're already having, and that I want you to continue to have with one another, with other believers, as we maneuver this secular age together. I want you to be educated. I, I want you to know how to maneuver it. There are several books that, that I've, I've read recently that have really helped me in this conversation, uh, but one that I highly recommend is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I'm going to be talking about some of the ideas from this book tonight. Uh, it's really a history of Western philosophy in the past 300 years. If you want it, okay, I actually brought five copies, and I think it's $20 but on here it's $34.99. But if you want it and you're willing to right now Venmo at the collective $20, you can get one of the five copies before we leave. So who, who would like a copy before going home tonight? All right, one, two, if I'm pointing at you, three, four, five, okay? But who was over here? All right, I saw one hand over here. All right, Ben, you know what? You, might, you felt like you got left out but really you got left in. You are the grand prize winner, free book. Thanks for playing piano for us tonight also. Um, but such, such, such a helpful book. So the, the author Carl Truman, uh, he's, he's a great historian. He's a great scholar. He kind of starts the, the book off with this premise. And, and I'll start tonight off with the same premise. He, he says, my granddad died in 1994, <laughs> 26 years ago, or whatever that is, 27 years ago. And, and I, you know, 1994 doesn't feel that long ago. I mean, for some of y'all, maybe that's when, before you were born. But I, I, I remember 1994. Um, you know, I remember in 1994, for example, watching O.J. Simpson on the famous car chase. It was a Friday night, my parents had gone out. I was like being, I was left home alone. I was old enough to be left home alone. And uh, man, I remember watching this on TV that night. I remember in 1994, going to Joe Davis Stadium in Huntsville, Alabama and watching the second greatest athlete of all time, Michael Jordan, play baseball uh, against the Huntsville Stars there in Huntsville, Alabama. Great memory from 1994. I also remember in 1994, little old Auburn University going down to the swamp and taking on the number one ranked Florida Gators and old Patrick Nix, daddy of Bo Nix, throwing it to Frank Sanders and um, Auburn beating the Gators to keep a 17-game win streak alive. What a memory from 1994. 1994 doesn't feel that long ago to me. I remember these things pretty vividly. And so Truman says, 1994, my granddad died. And if you would have told my granddad that you were a woman trapped in a man's body, he wouldn't have had a category for that. It's not that he wouldn't have like thought that was bad, though he may have. He wouldn't have even been able to understand what you were talking about. He wouldn't have had the mental categories necessary to process that information that you just told him. That's 1994. That's not that long ago, okay? 
And so how have we gone from Carl Truman's granddad dying in 1994, same year Frank Sanders caught the pass in the end zone against Florida, how have we gone from there to today where if you disagree with someone who says that they're a, man tra- or a woman trapped in a man's body, then you're wrong. How have we gone to a place today to where the parents can't even disagree with their child who might say, the state might take custody away from parents who refuse sex transition medication to their children that believe that they are a woman trapped in a man's body or a girl trapped in a boy's body. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, it makes sense if you understand the title of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And so again, we're starting a conversation. This is a big conversation that we have tonight. How are we as believers going to maneuver this secular age? And so three things that I really want to do for you is first of all, I just want to help, I want to define some terms for you. These are terms that I will use, that I have used, that I think you can use, and they'll be helpful for you, okay? So that's a part of this. The second thing, I want to give you a very short history of Western philosophy. We're really just going to talk about three philosophers. Truman talks about a lot of different philosophers, and he talks about a lot of folks that, that brought different philosophies together. So if you're interested in, if that section intrigues you, you need to get the book that I just gave to Ben, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And then the, the third thing I'm going to do, not necessarily covered in the book, but covered in the passage we just read, is the real problem and the real solution. So let's define some terms, okay? What, what are we talking about here? Well, the first term that I want to define for you is paganism, okay? Now, paganism, it was actually kind of first used as a term to describe the people that were pagan, that, that worshipped many gods, that were polytheistic, what I like to say is this, is that the pagans of the day worshipped the, the things that were around them, the things that they could see, the, the things that seemed real to them, the sun, the moon, the stars, fire. They were opposed to monotheism. Now, what's interesting about paganism, and particularly Roman paganism, if, you've kind of, if you know anything about church history, is that the pagan folk in the first few centuries of the church were not open-minded to a monotheistic religion. The Jews and the Christians were often oppressed by the pagan religions of the day. Obviously, if you know anything, again, as I said about church history, it would be the first 300 years, the first large part of the first 300 years of Christian history, that Christians were, that Christianity was illegal in the Roman world, and that Christians were oppressed by the Roman world, and that Christians were tried to uh, the, the, the pagan kind of culture that they lived in tried to do away with the Christianity of the day. The reason I bring this up, I think it's an interesting thing to think through. As you think about the secular age, I, I'm going to invite you to, to reframe how you understand secularism. What the culture would want you to understand is that there's been a progression. 
we have been a polytheistic age, right? Where people worshiped many gods and they were not defined. And then we got a little more sophisticated and became monotheistic, right? And that's where Christianity and Islam and these other world religions kind of dominated the world stage. And now we are becoming secular, right? We are moving into a secular society. We're moving post-Christian or post-religious world, post uh, sort of monotheistic society. And the, and the world would want you to see this kind of mental pro- ideals as progression, right? But really, and, and there's another great book called, St- called Cri- Pagans and Christians in the City by Stephen Smith, and he really traces out this idea. We don't live in a secular age. Secularism implies some sort of neutrality, right? But it, we don't live in a neutral age, do we? It, it's not as if you're free to really exercise your religion in any way you want to, as long as someone else is free to exercise their religion in any way that they want to. It's, it's, it's kind of a modern paganism. It's, it's, it's a modern sense of worship, if you will. The, the, the thing that's, inter- the, the, the kind of case that's interesting to trace out one in this one is, you know, the cases that have come up about, you know, people baking cakes for gay weddings, right? So why is this happening? Why are these lawsuits being brought, 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 brought forward? It's not as if the cake baker, for example, is oppressing the couple. They're just refusing to serve the couple. It's not as if they're the only baker in town, right? There's other options to choose from for the couple. So why is it so offensive to the couple that these kind of cake bakers even exist in the world? And if you, if you follow this at all, there's a religious energy about this. It's not Christianity and secularism, as this author would say, Stephen Smith, it's really a different kind of worship. It's a different kind of spiritual energy. It's a different kind of paganism. So that's the first kind of term I'd like to define for you. The second one is, is what I'm going to define, and I think this is a helpful, you know, category for us. And some of y'all have heard me talk about this before, is Western Christianity. Some of y'all have heard me talk about like river city ethics or the, the, Western, the Western Christianity superstructure. I'm, I'm all, these are all kind of describing the same thing. So Western Christianity is not Christianity proper, right? So Christianity, what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ, is to realize that you need a savior, is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, is to repent of your sins and turn to Christ, who you believe is the son of God, who came to trade places with you, who died on a cross for you, who gives you the hope of righteousness and life through faith in him. That is Christianity at its simplest form. Western Christianity is what I would call the ethical and moral and philosophical superstructure that has accompanied Christianity, that that Christianity kind of builds out. Now, sometimes this Western Christianity, ethical, philosophical, moral superstructure reflects true Christian teaching, right? Sometimes it does not, okay? So, for example, historians have struggled to place the Reformation of the church. What was the Reformation of the church? 
Was it the beginning of the Enlightenment or was it a reformation of Western Christianity? Of course, we as Christians understand that it was a reformation of Western Christianity, that, that actually the church, the authoritative church of the day had gotten away from the purity of the church, from the true teaching of scripture, and it needed to be reformed. It actually needed to be brought back to orthodoxy or to Christianity. Western Christianity at that time was not reflective of Christianity. But the, the authority structure in a Western Christianity world, whether it's reflective of Christianity or not, is the church, right? This is why um, historians have struggled to place the Reformation because they, they look at it as a breaking down of the church's particular authority. So that's Western Christianity. And obviously we, we still hold to these things. We, there, there's still realities around us that flow out of Western Christianity. In fact, I've, I've often said secularism could only come from Western Christianity. The, the secular world that you live in could never have, flown, have grown out of an Islamic kind of worldview. It could never have grown from an Eastern kind of worldview. You know, I've, I've, I've said before, you may, some of you have heard me say this, that secularism is the disrespecting child of Western Christianity. You know, you ever know a, a child that disrespects their parents? They would never treat any other adult like this, you know? Like even my child, Rainer, my little boy, okay? He can be incredibly disrespectful of me, as cute as he is, okay? But if some other adult, like if Kelly would say something to him, he would, he would listen to her. He would be, he, kids oftentimes are most, the, the, most, the adult they're most disrespectful to is their own parent. We have all, and you know, I'm, I'm, I always say I'm still a millennial. I, I, I was born 26 days into being a millennial. So we, I'm one of you guys, uh, we, we understand this because we've been disrespectful to our own parents. So that's Western Christianity. All right, next thing is modernity. Now, modernity was a breaking away. So this is the age of reason, the age of enlightenment. And, and it was a worldview built on not some sort of um, authoritative text like scripture, not some sort of divine revelation, but it was a worldview that said you can understand everything you need to know about the world through observation and reason, right? If you just observe the world rightly and you use right reason, then you can understand everything you need to know about the world. And the authority in modernity is science, or should I say physical science? And I think that's an important uh, category. The authority there is physical science, science that you can test, science that you can use the scientific method on. That's the authority in the modern world. So it's a rejection of the church's authority toward the authority of the academy. In fact, I was just in New Haven, um, Connecticut. Okay. Anybody been to New uh, Haven, Connecticut? It's the home of Yale University. Um, great American institution, right? And if you go to Yale, the library of Yale looks like a church. And the circulation desk of the library at Yale sits where the altar or where the pulpit of the church would be. And it's a great statement of modernity, right? What, they're, what are they saying? They're saying all you need is observation. All you need is good reason. That's all you need 
to be transcendent, to know what you need to know about life. And then the, the other category, I'm, I'm spending too much time on these, is post-modernity. Is this helpful to you guys? Okay, okay. Just want to make sure. If it gets too, uh, if it gets too, if I start geeking out on you, be like, you know, just give me to like tune it down a little bit, you know. All right. The, the next category is post-modernity. Now, post-modernity is a, the, the fact that post-modernity came, post-modernity gets a bad rap, right? We, we some people say, oh, it's postmodern culture or whatever. And, and I think post-modernity deserves a bad rap in some senses, but in another sense, it is a reaction to a worldview that was failing. Modernity basically says that everything can be understood in the physical world, right? Through observation and through, uh, you know, right reasoning. Well, of course, Everything can't be understood in the physical world, right? There are, there are supernatural realities. There are metaphysical realities. There are emotional realities. The, the physical world, modernity falls short of explaining how the world works, right? And, and, and a lot of even modernist thinkers like David Hume, for example, um, who said, look, justice and morality are obvious. And again, he's been greatly criticized recently because obviously everybody is crying out for justice and nobody agrees on what that is, right? This is just one of the failings of modernity. And so what's happened is if modernity was, say, look around you and find and understand the world around you, postmodernity would say, look within you. And the authority of postmodernity, so remember the authorities of these things, I would say the, the authority of paganism is, you know, kind of the, the observable world around you having some sort of de deific power. Western Christianity, obviously, the authority is the church, as we said, whether or not the church is good or bad. Modernity, the authority is science. Postmodernity, the authority is really psychology, okay? So it's still kind of science, but it's like internal science. It's not, it's not science like chemistry, where you can put a couple elements together and see what happens. It's, it's science like psychology, which who knows what, you know, it's not really a science, right? It's, it's an observation. It's, I mean, with all due respect to psychologists here, but there's, it's, 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 it's not a science in the same kind of way as, you know, if, if you put um, two particles of hydrogen with one particle of oxygen, like every time, 100% of the time, there's going to be water, right? That's, chemistry is a different kind of science than psychology. So postmodernity, the, the authority really is what's going on inside of you. And I would say it's psychology has become the authority. The last term, and these are kind of like phases of thought, the last term is not that, but it's a super helpful term. Um, I don't know if any of y'all have read any Charles Taylor. He's written a lot about secularism, but it's the social imaginary, and it's how you imagine the world to be. This is incredibly helpful. It's incredibly helpful if you ever want to like be a good historian, if you ever want to interact with other people. What social imaginary are they coming out of? How do they imagine the world to be? So, so remember the Carl Truman example that I gave, his grandfather died in 1994, had no category for I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. The social imaginary, how he imagined the world around him to behave and to be like, did not have a place 
for that kind of a thing, for that kind of thinking. Obviously, today we live in a world with very different social imaginary, right? We, we live in a world where those things are very possible and very real, and we we can understand them. We see them around them all the time. Somebody in today's world may may not have a category, for example, of somebody saying, "I want to wait until marriage to have sex." Right? They may not have grown up in any sort of a Christian context. They may have they may have not any sort of a formed sexual ethic, and so that statement may make no sense to them. Right? And so we can understand why they would think that because they have a different social imaginary than you if you grew up in a Christian environment. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, this is also really helpful too. I think this is super helpful in terms of understanding some of the historical debates that we're having right now. So, for example, the, the, the debate that we kind of had over this summer about statues and monuments. If, 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 a, if a monument was put up to a Civil War hero in the Jim Crow era to reinforce slavery or to reinforce what I would say racial division, okay, that, okay, is wrong. I, I think that I think we would all agree that monument should be taken down because the the meaning behind the monument is something that was cruel and wrong. Okay, but on the other hand, if a, if a monument was put up to honor something that we would all still celebrate, so for example, George Washington was a slave owner, and we would all condemn that he owned slaves, of course, but we don't honor George Washington. We didn't name the city of Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., because George Washington owned slaves. We, we, we did this because of his courage and because he helped found America and because he led our country with honor and he helped establish this American story, right? But he grew up, he lived in a time, and of course, he wasn't a perfect man. This is not a defense of anyone, but it's helpful to understand the context within people live. He lived in a time where the social imaginary of his world it would have been difficult for him to even understand that this, what we see as obvious that he was doing wrong, was even wrong. It was, he had a different social imaginary that he was coming from. So I hope that's a helpful category. And I think it, as, as you have these kind of conversations, again, and as you interact with people that come from different worldviews and different places, I think it will be helpful to you to understand this concept of the social imaginary. So that was a review of terms. The next thing that I want to do is give you a short, and I mean very short, history of Western philosophy. And really what I want to do here is just look at three philosophers. But I think looking at these three philosophers will help answer Carl Truman's question, how did we get from 1994 to today? How did the social imaginary of the world change so much from 1994 to today? And I think what he kind of argues in that book is that if you, if you really understood the philosophy that existed even in 1994 and much further back, it makes a lot of sense. The, the, the pieces of this puzzle have been in place for a long time. So three philosophers that I want to look at with you that I think are their thought is, is deeply affecting um, the understanding of the world today. Okay, so the first is Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Okay, so in, in a Western Christianity culture, the way that people understood the world 
was from a Christian perspective. And, and Christians have this idea of human fallenness or original sin, right? We believe that we have this propensity toward disobedience of God. It's not that we, it's not that we always, it's not that everything we've done ever in our lives is necessarily wrong, but that it is that all of us, our whole Everything that's a part of us is in some ways broken. It's not complete. It's not full. It's not right. It's fallen from God, right? And we, we are born with this, and we need redemption. We need to be made right. And, of course, this is what the Christian gospel does. Rousseau, he's basically recycling something that was from a fourth-century philosopher, Pelagius, but he kind of brings it into modern day, what he basically said is, no, human beings are not born in this sort of kind of fallen, broken way. They become fallen by the world around us. And, and, and what he does in that is he kind of exalts the self, if you will. The self is good. It just has bad influences, right? I'm not the problem. You're the problem. You've influenced me bad. You're, my parents are the problem. My village is the problem. It's created these categories that have messed me up all around me. Um, and so it, it, it validated the self and it, it talked about the external corruption, which if you're writing in a Western Christianity kind of world, it's this kind of a pivot from uh, Western Christianity to modernity is the season that he's writing, 18th century. It's, it's very easy to talk about how these structures that the world had previously celebrated, it's easy to see them as maybe not good and what's going on inside of me as good. The second philosopher I want to talk about, so now we're going to move to the 19th century, is Karl Marx. Marx, obviously, very famous. People probably know who he is. People know him as kind of the... Um, the, the founder of communism or Marxism, communism, I would say, is kind of a derivative of, of, of Marxist thought, um, but he believed that, that societies kind of always exist in class conflict, okay? So he was not an individualist. He believed that, that different people were kind of defined by the class that they were in. He famously talked about the working class, okay, and the ruling class or the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And he said that the, the working class was kind of slave to, was being pushed around by the ruling class. And really his goal was to set the world free of class warfare by getting rid of the ruling class and by having kind of one class of people. Now, the reason that today, as people bring up critical theory, you hear a lot of these neo-Marxism claims, right? And again, I think there's things to learn from all of these people, right? And there's, there's things that they're observing that are, that are right. But this is the same kind of thinking that Marx was using. There is a class or a type of person that's oppressed, and there's an oppressor and, and someone that's oppressed. And, and, and your kind of identity is defined by which class you are of. So you have Rousseau who's kind of freeing the self, and we're corrupted by the influences around us. You have Marx that kind of introduces, and there's a lot of philosophy. This is a very brief history of Western philosophy. But I think this is important for understanding this current moment. And it really politicized a lot of the struggles that exist between people. And then now we're going to move into the 20th century. And the last philosopher that we want to look at is Freud. 
And, and Freud really developed this idea that, that true reality is, is, is more internal than external. So if, if all of this is kind of giving the self an identity, if, if Rousseau kind of started to exalt the self, Freud kind of took this to the next level. Freud had this idea of the id. Some of y'all remember learning this in philosophy class, the id, the ego, and the superego. And, and, and basically, Freud's philosophy or his idea was that you kind of want to free the id. <laughs> you you want to, f- you're, you're most happy when your, your natural desires in you are most free. He was very concerned with desire, personal desire. You were happiest when your id was not oppressed by your superego. And I'm not going to go through what all those words mean, but if you've read Freud, you know what I'm talking about. But the, the important thing to know here is that he's taking reality kind of away from external oppression and kind of putting it into internal oppression. So Marx had this kind of oppressor-oppressed ideology, but it was like because this person literally had no food or money, this person had great wealth, and so there was physical things that represented their class. What Freud really did is he kind of took the, the reality away from something physical or observable and said, do you feel this way or do you feel that way? What is psychological? Do you feel like your desires are being met or do you feel like your desires are always having to be oppressed. So these schools of thought and philosophy and theology, they've been around, again, I just kind of went through 300 years of thought, but when you start to put these together, internally I'm pure and outside there is corruption, when you start to put together, we need to get rid of the order and the structures that oppress, When you start to put that together with now oppression is psychological and you can't pressure me against how I feel about something, you start to understand the statement you start to understand how now a category in 1994 that nobody had a category for, for you to say, I feel like a woman as a man, and for you to say anything against that, you become a part of the ruling class. You become a part of the oppressing class. You become a part of the enemy here. And, and all of these streams of philosophy have been moving on for a long time. I really wanted to do with that, what I really wanted to do with that was just help you, give you some categories to to kind of help you realize like how we kind of started getting here and maybe what is going on. But the third thing that I want to do tonight, and this is the most important thing, and I probably spent too much time on all of that, but I I hope it'll help you in your conversations. The third thing I want to do is really, let's talk about the real problem and the real solution, the real problem and the real solution. At the end of the day, all of this comes down to this, this deep desire for an identity that we all have. This deep desire for an identity that every person has. This question of who am I really? You know, I, I've, I've quoted this before, but I love the scene in Forrest Gump when Jenny says, you know, do you ever dream, Forrest, about who you're going to be? And Forrest says, aren't I going to be me, you know? And Jenny says, well, yes, of course you'll be you. You'll always be you. 
you'll just be another kind of you. Another kind of you. And I think that, that there's something in us where we have this question, who am I? What am I like? How do I find the, the right kind of me? Now, again, in kind of a, a more what I would call authoritarian traditional society, a lot of your identity was assigned to you. Uh, my last name is Dees. You know why? Because my people come from the Dundee region of Scotland. It's, if you've ever gone to like St. Andrews, uh, where the, uh, you know, the golf was invented, you know, I'm no golfer, but my people are from near there. And we grew up off the Dundee River. Like I say grew up, I mean, this was like in the 1500s, but you know, it, that's where, and so, and so my whole name, my, my identity, these are the people of Dundee. These are the D's people, right? A lot of your last names, right? They, they came from not location, but vocation, right? So if your last name is Baker, right? It's kind of obvious what people before you did. If your last name is Smith, right? You, you were of some sort of craftsman, a blacksmith or a metalsmith of some sort. If your last name is Farmer, again, you get the picture. So again, in, in, in traditional cultures, identity, who you came was, was, was something that was assigned. Now, one of the things that we've always kind of loved in the West is stories about people that are breaking away from sort of the traditional kind of cultural, you know, norms, what, what everybody's expecting of you. We love these stories. I mean, I don't have any ladies, you know, you, you love stories of, um, you know, like, like Pride and Prejudice, right? Where there's a, there's a breakaway from sort of the, the cultural norm that, that was expected and the true identity was found. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen, have any of y'all seen the musical Newsies? Is that a thing for, for us millennials? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we like, we like, we like the Newsies. And so, and so I remember the Newsies, they're, they're delivering paper in New York and it's Christian Bale in the movie. And uh, yeah, there you go, Christian Bale. And he sings this song about Santa Fe. I just want to go to Santa Fe. If I can go to Santa Fe, I'll be someone. He says, Santa Fe, just be real. That's all I'm asking, not some painting in my head, because I'm dead. If I can't count on you today, I got nothing. If I ain't got Santa Fe, now what is that? That's, <laughs> that's not just a guy that wants to go to New Mexico really bad. I got nothing if I don't have Santa Fe. This is someone looking for a different kind of you, right? If you were here on Sunday, Zoe, right? A life, a life, an identity. What can really give me this sense of self that I have? Again, a lot of people get their identity from some sort of a relationship. You know, I was thinking of another song, um, any Whitney Houston. Y'all know Whitney Houston, you know? I know, I know she's, you know, Maybe some of our millennial parents, the parents of millennials liked her more than we do, but, um, but we still respect her because she just had this mega voice. And um, the first, so I remember like, and this was a show, I'm a little older. I remember we first got a CD play at her house 
And the, the first CD that like we had was the Bodyguard soundtrack, which was a movie with Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner. And there's a, there's a song in there that said, it, 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 it said it, the name of the song is I Have Nothing. And Whitney Houston says, don't make me close one more door. I don't want to hurt anymore. Stay in my arms if you dare, or I must imagine you're there. Don't walk away from me. I have nothing, nothing, nothing if I don't have you. Okay, this isn't a, just a woman singing about romance. This is a woman singing about an identity. <laughs> Who am I? If I don't have you, I am nobody. I am nothing. And I tell you all of this because I think this really fits into the conversation that we're having right now. You know, diversity and equality training at your office, the gender confusion that we see, you know, around us going on right now. However you want to couch this issue, it, it, it really all comes down to an identity crisis. It, it's this case of a person seeking to find an identity, something that's fulfilling, something that will make them happy, a, a person seeking to be fulfilled by a sex change, and I want you to hear this, is not too different than some of you who think that you'll be fulfilled by making partner at your job. It's not too different from someone who thinks they'll be fulfilled by marrying the perfect guy. It's just we live in a time when people have the money and the technology and you can seek an identity in pretty much anything. But the amazing message of Christianity is that you neither have to be assigned importance by where you're from or by what job you have, or by what family you've come from, nor do you have to go out and make your own identity in whatever it may be. The beauty of Christianity is that the very God who made you, who designed you to be you, who designed you as you are, has actually given you value and worth. And where you begin to find that Zoe, that true life, is when you rightly know him, when you submit to him, when you love him, when you listen to him. That's actually where the meaning and the purpose and the value of life really comes from. And again, if that seems bondagey, right? Oh, well, what are you saying? I just have to go back to the church. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying go to a church or authority. I'm not saying come to me for that. I'm saying go to God who's revealed himself to you, who's spoken to you. And when you find out the identity of the designer, the grand designer, who's not some mystery that you have to imagine, but someone who's spoken, it's actually incredibly freeing. It's incredibly good. And the beauty of the Bible <laughs> is that even though the year has changed and the situations have changed a little bit, the human heart really hasn't. In Jeremiah 17, the passage that I read to start, 
was written in a very similar time to where we are right now. It's really pretty much the exact same time. It was a time when the people of Judah, who had had some sort of stable identity for a long time, who had a faith in God, were being captured and led away by the Babylonians. It was a time of incredible confusion. It was a time where one worldview was colliding with another worldview in the most palpable of ways. It was a time where people didn't know what was right and what was wrong or who they should serve or who they should bow down to. The world was rapidly changing all around them. It was written at a time when everything was confusing. And what does Jeremiah say to these people who some of them were saying, wait, was my identity the identity that I had back in Israel or do I have to go over to Babylon and find this new identity? What does the prophet Jeremiah say to these people? He says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord the true giver of life. And here's what he's like. And this is why there's so much, we live in an anxious age. Why do we live in an anxious age? Well, here's why. He is like a shrub in the desert that shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. (laughs) Jeremiah is laying out a bleak picture of the man or the woman who is trusting in something other than God, who is finding his or her identity in something or someone other than God, he says the human condition outside of God is a dry, barren, hard shrub in the desert. (laughs) He says there's no good and no good will come. The condition of the human heart when you're out trying to justify yourself in some sort of Freudian self-actualization way leaves you dry. When you're trying to hold on to the identity that's been given you by some super institution leaves you dry. But he juxtaposes it with the man who really knows God, who's really trusting in God. Look at verse 7. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water who sends out its roots into the stream, into God himself. He does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. You want to be fruitful? You don't have peace. You don't have poise. Trust in the Lord. He's like a river who will never let you down. He'll always sustain you even when everything around you is giving way. Hope in him. If your faith in him, if your identity is found in him, then you'll always be fruitful. This is what Jeremiah is saying 2,600 years ago. 
Everyone's going to put their faith in something. Everyone's going to find their identity in something. If you put your faith in man, if you put your faith in flesh, you'll dry up. But if you put your faith in the Lord, if you find your identity in him, you will be satisfied. And you know what Jeremiah did? You know what he did? He preached that sermon for 40 years. For 40 years, he preached that sermon. If you put your faith in man, if you trust in the flesh, you're a shrub, you'll dry up, you'll be desolate. But if you put your faith in the Lord, you'll be like a river and you'll, you'll be overwhelmed with life and with fulfillment and with goodness and you'll be fruitful even in the season of drought. If you put your faith in man, you'll, be, you'll dry up, you'll be like a desert, it'll never satisfy you. It, it'll, it'll be so empty. But if you put your faith in the Lord, you'll be like a tree and you'll bear fruit and you'll be strong and your roots will go out into the river. For 40 years, he preached this message. And you know what? No one listened to him. Two people. <laughs> Two people believed. 40 years he preached. Two people believed him. And you know what? We live in a city where not many people are going to believe this either. No matter how many times I preach it, no matter how many times Thomas preaches it, people are going to be like, a shrub? <laughs> I live in Buckhead. <laughs> you know? <laughs> a parched wasteland. You know what they're going to say? Calm down. That's what they said to Jeremiah. Calm, calm down, Jeremiah. Babylon's not that bad. Calm down. It's fine. It's fine. You're good. That's what, that's what they said to him. That's what, they, that's what they're going to say to you. Sounds like good preacher talk. But let's get real. This place, this relationship, it's given me so much. So much more than my religion. It isn't a desert. And in this individualistic Western culture that we find ourselves in, people say, of course, things like, let's celebrate the human spirit. We can do anything if we do it together. I did it my way. These are the kinds of Western humanistic phrases that you hear all the time that always get an applause too, right? We can do it all if we do it together. You know, nobody's given a big speech and said, we're all like shrubs. <laughs> So I want to be very clear here. Finding your identity in work or success over here and finding your identity in sexual morality or a gender change or whatever it is over here, it's all a part of the same desert. It's putting your faith in flesh. Finding your identity in a relationship or a dream or your hometown or finding your identity in something that clearly goes against Western Christianity, it's same desert. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, an uninhibited salt land. 
you know, the problem with all of these earthly things that you're going to leave here tonight, you're going to go to work, and people around you are going to say, hey, look at me, follow me, find your identity here and here and here. The problem with them all is they, they, they kind of make you feel okay for a little while, right? They kind of give you a boost for a little while. So does the desert, right? The desert's great at first. It's like it's sunny. It's nice and warm. But there's no water. Eventually, you just dry up. It doesn't satisfy. It can't be sustained. Everything dies in the desert. But blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He or she is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream but does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. And this seems so right, doesn't it? <laughs> I could just end the sermon here, right? All right, do you want to do desert? Well, I guess No. You want to do river, stream? Yeah. Yet we'll go out and we'll struggle. Why? Verse 9, the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, our, our own hearts are our greatest problem. The human heart is deceptive. It can lead you to believe things that are not true or true. It can lead you to, to think that you are really trusting in the Lord because you read your Bible this morning. It can lead you to think that you are really trusting the Lord because you're here at Bible study when really your hope is not in God. You're not planted by this stream. Your hope is in some other identity. And this is such a great warning to all of us. You know, the, the, the application of these kinds of sermons should never be just try harder. <laughs> try harder to put your identity in God and not in these fleeting things. If that's your response, just do better at religion. All you're going to end up doing is put your faith in man, just a different kind of man. You're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the desert. Your only hope and my only hope is that someone would save us, that our hearts would be changed. Our, our only hope is actually to get a new heart. You know, Jeremiah understood two things. The first is the, that only the Lord really understands the heart. He ends verse 9 with this question, who can understand the heart? And then look at verse 10, I the Lord. <laughs> Search the heart, test the mind. I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah knew that really only the Lord understands the heart, but secondly and more importantly, Jeremiah understood that only God could heal him. Look at verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. And you know the good news for you and for me, the good news for every one of us who's praying that prayer tonight, and I hope that you are, is that after Jeremiah, there came another prophet, and his name was Ezekiel. And he said in Ezekiel 36, that God, speaking for God, 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And after Ezekiel, God sent another prophet. Only this time he was more than a prophet. He was God's own son. And what did Jesus do when he began his earthly ministry? Where did Jesus go? How did Jesus begin his ministry? You know where he went? You know where he went? He went to the desert. And Satan came to him in the desert and tempted him with every identity, every false identity that you and I are tempted with. Satan tempted him with the identity of substance. He, identif- he tempted him with the identity of fame. He tempted him with the identity of wealth. And through all of that, the heart of Christ was pure and strong. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. His whole life, he walked with the Father. But at the end of his life, there's this amazing scene where Jesus is asked to drink a cup by God, his Father, the cup of his wrath. And Jesus took the cup and willingly drank it. And what taking the cup meant for Jesus is that he was taking on your heart. He was taking on my heart. He was taking on our hearts of stone. He was taking on our hearts that find identity in the self. He was taking on our heart and he was willing to be crushed and forsaken and even killed on our behalf. Don't you see, he became the shrub in the desert. He became the curse. And three days after he took on our hearts and died in our place, he came out of the desert. He was raised in our place. He came to begin a kingdom, a new life, a new kingdom. And and if you believe in him, I love this, Jesus offers you his heart. I will give you a new heart. This is the heart that Jesus offers. This is why he can say to the woman at the Samaritan well, I give you drink, and if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. My heart is what he offers to you. He alone can heal. He alone can really satisfy you. He alone, to, to, to even echo on Sunday's sermon, can give you Zoe, satisfying life. Are you planted in him? Are you like Jeremiah saying, heal me, O Lord. Give me a new heart. Change this heart that is deceived. Are you like Isaiah that says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Heal me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. And the the great news of the gospel is that he does. He offers you a new heart. He offers you his heart. And when you believe this, it'll change you. It'll satisfy you. You know what the last words of the Bible are? You know how the Bible kind of ends? It's an invitation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for those who are in Christ. And it says this, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who is thirsty drink of this water. 
This is the offer of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we live in an age when true human identity and righteousness and truth is so confusing and so hard and so easy, Lord, for us to be the ones who are deceived. And it's so easy, Lord, for us to be the ones who even in this age put our rest in things that look good but that are just as dry as the things that look strange. May we be the kind of people who only find our identity in the Lord. Give us new hearts, Lord. Renew our hearts. Renew our minds. Soften our hearts, Lord. May we be the kind of people that even now look in faith to Jesus the kind of people who are planted in him, who love him, who, who run our roots deep into him so that even in the dry times, even when things around us make us feel humiliated and small, we can be filled, satisfied. And do this work in our hearts. Give us new hearts. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Let's stand. Let's respond. If you want to pray, if you want to talk, if you have a question, I'll be in the back. Thomas will be there. Come find us as Jordan leads.